Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks so much for being with us uh, today. We have a show I'm really looking forward to digging into uh, with all of you. You know, incumbent presidents of the United States are rarely denied the chance by their own party to uh, win the nomination and run for a second term in office. It's only happened a handful of times in uh, modern times. Uh, In 1992, Pat Buchanan challenged George H.W. Bush. Buchanan had a pretty good showing in North Carolina. He didn't win there, but he scared uh, President George H.W. Bush and uh, uh, eventually, though, lost the nomination, never won uh, Buchanan, that is, a single primary. In um, 1976, Ronald Reagan challenged Gerald Ford. Of course, Ford was, at that point, had become president because of the resignation of Jimmy Carter. So he was running for election for the first time. Nevertheless, he was an incumbent president. Ronald Reagan made a pretty strong bid against him, but eventually lost. In 1972, Uh, Pete McCloskey, a California anti-war congressman, challenged Richard Nixon, who was running for his second term. And in 1968, Eugene McCarthy, an anti-war senator, uh, was uh, decided to challenge Lyndon Johnson for the Democratic nomination. In each case, the incumbent uh, won, but in each case, the challenge led to the defeat of the president. And that brings us to our show today. In 1980, Edward Kennedy decided to challenge the sitting president, Jimmy Carter, uh, for renomination to a second term as president. And it's one of the most dramatic stories, I think, in politics in the United States in contemporary times. And our guest today, John Ward, who is the senior political correspondent at Yahoo News, has written a book about what happened. It's called Camelot's End, Kennedy versus Carter, and the fight that broke the Democratic Party. John is with us from uh, NPR in Washington. John, I'm really glad you could join us. Your book is just fascinating to read. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm really excited to be on the show. Thank you. I have a lot of friends in Georgia. Oh, good. Well, we'll, I hope they're listening today. By the way, okay, John, here's just a little piece of trivia to add to what I just said, and we'll get into the uh, uh, Carter-Kennedy Uh, fight. How many times has a sitting president not been nominated by his party for a second term? I had to look this up. So if you know it off the top of your head, you're a far better person than I. Well, Bill, this is another serendipitous thing because I was literally just sitting here with my sheet of paper going over this. Uh By my count, it's happened three times. Millard Millard Fillmore in 1852, Franklin Pierce in 1856, and Andrew Johnson in 1868. Some people have counted Chester Arthur in 1884 as not as one of these number, but he really retired. Um, It's those other three right before and right after the Civil War. Oh, all right. John, 
you have just proven you go to the top of the list for panelists <laughs> always on this show. <laughs> All right. I'm Let, just glad I was preparing for that. That was great. <laughs> let's get right to, you, to your book, Camelot's End. First of all, if you don't mind, let's start. One of the things that I was interested in uh, reading is that you actually were able to sit down and spend some time with Jimmy Carter uh, and got his thoughts about that election. Jimmy Carter, as all of us who have covered him over the years know, can sometimes be a little prickly, uh, not eager to talk about the things that have not gone terribly well for him. What was your conversation with him like? How much time did you have with him? Did you talk to him over at the Carter Center at his uh, uh, offices there? Tell us a little about that experience. Sure. It was uh, the early early days of 2015, and I traveled to the Carter Center in Atlanta. It was a cloudy day. I remember that because I walked into his office, and there weren't a lot of interior lights on. It was mostly sort of ambient light coming in from the windows, and he was sort of standing at the window looking out into the garden when I came in. Kind of a dramatic type of uh, thing you'd see in the movies, and as I came in, he turned around and greeted me, um, and we, we, we didn't ever really get any, uh, you know, internal lights on. It was mostly just sort of uh, low, a low-lit room the whole time. That was interesting. He was, uh, he was sharp. He was um, really, really just sort of on his game. Um, I wasn't sure, you know, you don't, you don't know as somebody gets into their 90s how much um, they're going to be there mentally, but he was really, really all there. And um, I thought it was commendable and big of him to sit down with me and talk about it. We spent a little over 30 minutes talking about this. And I made sure to ask him as part of uh, what I wanted to talk about, about his runs for governor and some of the questions that that had raised um, about his approach to race in his first and second runs for governor um, at a time when, you know, the, the politics of Georgia were, were really still dominated or uh, in some part dominated by segregationists like uh, Maddox. Mm -hmm. And and how, you know, he, he of course, as you, you know, you're, you're really alluding to it, the 1970 governor's race, uh, he, uh, there were a lot of things that, that he, he did in that race uh, which appealed to the uh, to the to the segregationists. Um, there was yeah. a famous uh, ad which showed uh, his opponent in, in a picture with uh, some of the African Americans on the Atlanta Hawks. Right. Uh, that was uh, an attempt to paint him as too friendly with uh, blacks. Uh, right. There were any number of things. Even at the same time that Daddy King, in, it was was beginning to be won over by him. It was a mixed bag with Carter way back then, wasn't it? It really was. It's an interesting race. I mean, he run he ran in '66 as a, right. as a very very progressive moderate on race, right. and lost. And Lester Maddox won. Um, Maddox obviously was famous for uh, barring African Americans from his restaurant. Um, and so in 1970, the, the thing I thought was fascinating was that in between the 66 and 70 runs is when Carter has a spiritual awakening and goes to Massachusetts to um, basically proselytize and help a Baptist church get started up there. He's going door to door, handing out Bibles, praying with people. And all of this is happening as he's reading Reinhold Niebuhr um, and uh, sort of developing a fusion of spiritually, d divinely sanctioned politics with this 
uh, realistic um, realpolitik approach to politics. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating chapter that I hope Jonathan Alter gets more into in his biography uh, of Carter. But in 1970s, you mentioned, you know, he 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 sanctioned or maybe. you know, looked the other way as members of his campaign did things like put out that uh, racist pamphlet. Um, and he, you know, once it went to a runoff, he really went into overdrive to win over some of these um, segregationist leaders in Georgia. And when I asked him about his approach to that year, he said, I didn't make any racist statements, but I didn't do anything to anger uh, those folks in Georgia as well. And, um, you know, I, I was glad that we had the chance to talk about that because it's not been something um, widely covered in his uh, in his legacy. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And what was, of course, interesting, and we've, we've talked about this on, on this show on a couple of occasions, is that having won with an appeal to white uh, uh, supremacists, essentially, or, right. or white segregationists is a fairer way to say that, uh, his inaugural speech, he declared an end to uh, bigotry, to segregation, right. and the New York Times the next morning put him on the front page and talked about a new era in Southern mm-hmm. politics. So, <laughs> that, And that, by the way, is not a bad place to start picking up the Kennedy-Carter uh, relationship. Because you told us something that I didn't know anything about at all. Early, I think it's pretty early in Carter's presidency that uh, doesn't Edward Kennedy come down and, and spend time with Carter in the mansion here? Uh, uh, in his, his I'm governor. sorry, in yes. his time as governor, yeah. Yeah, um, it's 1974, yeah. Um, if I'm getting that correctly. Hopefully I'm, I'm not misremembering that. But uh, so it's near the end of, of Carter's time as governor. And this is the first time that Carter and Kennedy ever meet. And it's a scene that's a t- that's played out, narrated by Hunter S. Thompson. It's really one of the more remarkable parts of the book. And yeah. I don't really claim a lot of credit for it. Um, I'm just sort of integrating um, a chapter from Hunter S. Thompson into the narrative. Um, Hunter S. Thompson went traveled from Washington to Atlanta with Teddy Kennedy, uh, I think, to write a profile of him, and um, shows up one morning for breakfast with Carter, uh, beer in hand in the back of a cab at the front gate, um, and then is ushered in to see that Kennedy and his staff are scrambling to find uh, their Secret Service detail to get to Athens. They're, Kennedy and Carter are both going to Athens for a speech, a yeah, law They're both going to be at the Law Day speech at the University right. of Georgia. Go ahead. Right. And Carter had told Kennedy, hey, you can hop a ride on my plane. We'll, we'll head out there together. Kennedy had spent the night at the mansion, apparently. And at the last minute, Carter informs Kennedy, actually, there's no room for you on the plane, so you're going to have to uh, to drive out there. And that's sort of the opening note in what Thompson observes is Carter sort of testing and uh, maybe pushing Kennedy around a little bit. And the background is that two years earlier, Ham Jordan and some of other uh, some of Carter's other aides had started to plot a, a run for president in 1976. And there were two people that Carter saw as his main rivals, uh, George Wallace in the South and Ted Kennedy in the Northeast. And so he Ken, Carter was... Uh, very, very highly aware of Kennedy. Kennedy had just returned from the Soviet Union, had met with Leonard Brezhnev, and was really, um, you know, treated there as a president in waiting because uh, Nixon was in the middle of Watergate. Uh, Kennedy didn't really give two thoughts to to who Carter was. He assumed he's a one-term uh, limited governor, um, and he'll be back on the farm in uh, in a couple more months. 
You know, what's interesting, I think, to, to look at is, of course, uh, back then, Carter as governor was unknown nationally. And the Edward Kennedy that we think about when we think of Kennedy today is an iconic figure who who is a large, larger-than-life force in American politics. But that's not who Edward Kennedy was back in the early to mid-'70s. He was the little brother of two lost brothers and still had to establish who he was. So my point is that uh, they were, to some extent— equals in their lack of standing as national mm. political figures, right? Yeah, that's that's true. Kennedy was like this very flawed vessel for all the hopes of the Democratic Party to reignite the glory days of JFK and of Bobby Kennedy, you know, to the cliche being the days of Camelot. And uh, Kennedy had been in the Senate for only a little over a decade at that point, and he was very, very still recently removed from his disgrace at Chappaquiddick, where Mary Jo Kopechny was uh, killed uh, in his car, either uh, was we, we think by by drowning or asphyxiation, potentially by um, being trapped in the car and not being able to breathe. So that's on Kennedy's, um, you know, I, that's a big part of his identity at that point. And there are stories of Kennedy after Chappaquiddick going back to the Senate and his aides telling him, you have to walk around the floor and talk to other senators to make it appear that you're somehow relevant because he lost a lot of stature. He was already in leadership uh, at that time and was stripped of that position uh, afterwards. Um, the Law Day speech, uh, yeah. tell, tell, tell us a little bit about, because you write about it, about them in the book, tell us a little about the speeches that each of them gave in Athens. Well, it's probably arguably the, the best speech Carter ever gives. Yeah. And um what it might have turned into is a really interesting, um, you know, road to go down. But what happens is that Kennedy speaks first. And um, again, this is mostly Hunter S. Thompson's uh, narration. So hopefully he was uh, awake sober. and passed out drunk. <laughs> well, I don't think he was sober. Well, that may uh, be. He talks about going to the to the Secret Service cars for refills of, of bourbon. <laughs> but um, Kennedy speaks first. And then Carter... Um, I guess I'll just tell this part now. He goes off to a side room and decides Kennedy's remarks were too much like what he was going to say. And he just sort of jots a few things down on a piece of paper. And and Thompson, after the speech, asks him for a copy of his prepared remarks. And Carter says, well, there weren't any. I just did this thing in the side room. The speech is um, really a a deep-throated populist um, rebuke of the establishment. Carter goes after the audience uh, in their face and basically tells them that they are too content with the status quo of the criminal justice system and that they had too often rejected uh, seminal figures of the civil rights movement like Martin Luther King Jr. uh, rather than um, accepting him or encouraging his cause. And he basically tells them, you know, my fear is that after I'm gone, the reforms that I tried to implement to the criminal justice system and to racial equality in the state are going to be rolled back um, and uh, makes a call for them to to carry forward that work rather than roll it back. And um, the really interesting thought is, you know, what if this was sort of a test drive or what if this could have become his message in 1976 as a candidate, obviously some of the racial politics would have been more complicated, but as a populist message, uh, you know, a guy coming from Southwest Georgia where he grew up on a farm with no running water and no electricity till he was around 10 years old, uh, coming from uh, essentially poverty, 
um, that kind of populist message could have been the message that he took into the presidential campaign. And I think what ended up uh, giving him a different message was just the fact that the country was, their psyche was dominated by Watergate. And, and the appeal that Carter ended up taking was one that was more of a healer. Yeah. One of the things that was fascinating to me, uh, uh, to read your description by way of Hunter Thompson of the the Carter speech in Athens uh, is, it, at least the way it comes across on the page, is it sounds a bit as if Carter was lecturing his audience, mm, uh, yeah. uh, you know, pointing the finger, you know, this is what you have to become. You have to, it's up to you. And, and what's kind of remarkable about that is it's exactly the way that Carter ends up behaving in much of what he does in the White House, uh, being the guy who is always kind of reproving and telling people, the American people, how they must uh, change, shape up, whatever. It's, it's, it's interesting that he was doing that as early as, uh, as that Athens speech. Yeah, and I think a lot of people would would fast forward to the uh, crisis of confidence, the uh-huh. AKA Malay's speech, as an example of that. And I don't, I have mixed feelings about that. I think the Malay's speech, of course, he didn't use that term, but the Malay's speech, I think, is in many ways a remarkable speech and um, was really gutsy in some ways. I do see, of course, the broader trend of Carter being a lecturing type of figure um, throughout his political career. And in fact, uh, before the Malay speech, a couple months before that, he, um, as the energy crisis heats up, he does give a speech that is sort of an I told you so mm-hmm. um, to, the, to the country and then has to kind of walk that back. And um, maybe it was just the general tenor of his uh, time in office and of his person that created, that led to people interpreting the really, really high-profile speech as one in which he is lecturing, even if there was much more to that speech, I think, than just sort of blaming the American people. I mean, I thought his talk of a, of a spiritual crisis in the country, whether or not you agree with it, is really um, ambitious for any kind of president to do. And I think he called on the, on the people of America to, to sacrifice in ways that were um, tangible for a greater cause, which I don't think we've had a president really do that since then. I think since Carter, we've had Republicans promising tax cuts and, and Democrats promising government spending. Okay. So let me ask you a question and, and, and bring our listeners along with us. Uh, let's jump around a bit. Uh, you sure. brought up that speech. I, I want to go back in time to the challenge of uh, of Kennedy. Uh, I want to go back to Chappaquiddick in, in, in early, in the first time that Kennedy was thinking about running for president, then talk about 76. But why don't we go ahead and talk about what was happening with President Carter since you brought it up? We're now in 1979. Uh we have we've had a with the gas shortage has has taken hold. The the hostages are still in Tehran. I mean, this is one of the darkest periods of Carter's presidency. And at this point, uh, he has already been challenged. Uh, he knows that Edward Kennedy is coming after him for the presidency. Have I got that right? This is uh, locate me in time again. This we're is in what, about. This is, I think we're in mid July, nineteen seventy nine. Okay, the hostages were taken in in that fall. Oh, and, that's right. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. And and Kennedy's challenge was certainly on the radar. Right. 
Um, right. His speech in Memphis in December of 78 uh, convinced Ham Jordan that, that Kennedy was going to run. But it's actually been, as I've talked about this book, that it's sort of crystallized for me in maybe a more definite way that I, I think Kennedy is probably pretty sincere in his uh, sort of Hamlet uh, back and forth routine throughout 78 and 79. Yeah. yeah, because I think if you look at Carter's poll numbers at the beginning of 79, which is actually exactly where Trump is right now in his presidency entering year three, uh, Carter's poll numbers in the Gallup poll in early 79 were good. He was in the low 50, 50s in his approval rating. And a lot of that had to do with sealing the um, peace agreement between Egypt and Israel. That that was uh, hammered out at Camp David in the fall of 78. And then it was finalized in uh, March or so of 79. And so during that period, Carter's poll numbers dip a little bit uh, right after the new year, but then come back up once the peace agreement is finalized. So if you're Kennedy, I think you're looking at this and thinking, eh, I don't know. He looks like he's in pretty good shape. But then inflation just keeps going up. It goes from like 9 to 12 to almost 13% by the end of the year. It's definitely at around 11 by mid-year. And the energy crisis is, uh, is, is nearly cat- catastrophic for Carter. You have these gas lines showing up uh, first in L.A., then in other places, in New York, in other other places, and then it kind of goes national. Um, you have a, a guy stabbed and killed in Brooklyn at a gas station over a gas dispute. Another guy is shot and killed. Another guy is shot and killed in Texas. You have truckers on strike. Truckers are, are actually uh, sniping at guys who try to break that strike. So there's a lot of violence. Then you have the Levittown riots where there's two days of uh, mass rioting in the towns in the major town intersection in this uh, suburb of Philadelphia. All of this while Carter is abroad traveling in Asia is a really interesting detail that Carter is supposed to spend three or four days in Hawaii on a layover to basically recover from several weeks of uh, grueling international travel. And his staff tells him, you better get back here to Washington or else things are going to completely fall apart. And so they spend, I don't know, an hour, (laughs) an hour in in Honolulu, him and Rosalind, and then have to get back on our first one to get back to D.C. And that's what leads to his 10-day retreat uh, summit at Camp David and then the the Malay speech. Let's let I love the way you've set that all up. So let's go one step further. As you point out, so the Carters come back. They have not had a chance to rest up after this incredibly grueling trip. The country is in crisis all around him. And as you say, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Carter is off the radar. He's he's yeah. Governor Mark Sanford. He's gone. He's <laughs> he's on the Appalachian Trail or something. No one knows uh-huh. exactly what's happened to Jimmy Carter has basically disappeared. Right. Yeah. Even his own advisors are not sure what's going on. And uh, I believe it's Ham Jordan and and Pat Cadell were actually sharing. Uh, they were they were living together at the time. I had lunch with Cadell in uh, South Carolina about a year or two ago, and he was telling me about this. Um, and they had different approaches to how Carter should handle all this. But I don't think even they knew uh, what was going on. I think they knew he was at Camp David. Um, but. You know, the first visitors to see Carter at Camp David have to come out and tell reporters he's alive and he's healthy. He's not he's not like on his deathbed because there are there's so little information being given out that people are not sure if some health crisis has fallen upon the president and he could potentially um, be uh, be expiring physically. So that that's what then leads into 
10 days of Carter meeting with uh, people from all walks of life, whether it's, you know, political leaders, religious business, and then, um, you know, a couple trips out of Camp David to meet with, uh, quote unquote, regular folks. There's no question that his spirits are low. I think you have a comment yeah. from Bert Lance, uh, right. uh, who says that Carter was at his lowest uh, moment. How did you what are, where did those Bert Lance quotes come from since uh, Bert's been gone for a long time now? Yeah, this is another is an amazing little confluence of events here. Those comments are from uh, Bert Lance's interview with uh, the the Miller Center at the oh, University okay. of Virginia. Yeah. They've done since Carter's presidency, the Miller Center at Virginia has done an oral history of every presidency yeah. from Carter to to now. There is one political figure that they have done an oral history of who was not ever a president, Ted Kennedy. Oh, interesting. All right, so. So he comes back. He's been gone. The country's depressed. The president may very well be depressed. I think it's July 15th or right in that range. Yeah, that's right. Yep. He goes on national television. His advisors are not sure. They, they, don't, they don't really want him to give the speech that we're going to hear a little excerpt from right now. Let's just hear Jimmy Carter uh, in, on July 15th, 1979, in the Oval Office addressing the nation. I want to talk to you right now about a fundamental threat to American democracy. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. I will do my best but I will not do it alone. Let your voice be heard. Whenever you have a chance, say something good about our country. With God's help and for the sake of our nation, it is time for us to join hands in America. Let us commit ourselves together to a rebirth of the American spirit, working together with our common faith. We cannot fail. President Carter on July 15th, 1979. John, we've got to get to a break in a second, but a remarkable moment yeah. in his career. Yes? Yes, very much. And the vulnerability on display, I think, is what sticks out to me, both in his solicitation of input at Camp David and his recounting of that uh, process in the speech, and then just his willingness to kind of try to uh, diagnose in real time what was happening. It may not have been the right approach, but I, I just, I really admire his guts for trying to do that. And it was so much who Jimmy Carter is. That speech tells us so much about the kind of person he is introspective, willing to call on others, uh, willing to, to, to acknowledge that things are not going as well as they should. It's just, to me, uh, a, a truly remarkable moment in his life. Let's do this, John. Let's get to a break. Can we talk with you a little longer afterward? Absolutely. All right, here we yep. go. Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR 
or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. President Trump says he'll strike a bipartisan tone in the State of the Union, even as he aggravates Democrats over border security. I really think it's going to be a speech that's going to cover a lot of territory, but part of it's going to be unity. I'm Ari Shapiro. We'll hear from two freshman lawmakers, a Democrat and a Republican, on what they want to hear from the president this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Four till seven today on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Welcome back to Political Rewind. My guest today is uh, John Ward. His book is Camelot's End, Kennedy versus Carter and the Fight that Broke the Democratic Party. Uh, John, let's um, we, we, we're going to we're going to talk a bit about this uh, campaign that uh, Ted Kennedy waged against Carter in 1980. But if you don't mind, what I'd like to do is jump ahead in time. There's a very famous quote that you have in your book that uh, uh, a lot of people have wondered if it was actually true or not. I want to play you just a quick excerpt from a uh, an interview that Jimmy Carter did just in this past year on Stephen Colbert's show. And uh, you'll hear the quote that uh, we were going to talk about in just a second. Here we go. You got in a little bit of trouble back in 1980 in that campaign when it looked like Ted Kennedy might run. You famously said to a reporter, I will kick his ass. And at the time, that was unimaginable For me, yeah. that a president, yeah. that any president, yeah. that that would be, he would say that to a reporter. Yes. It seems pretty I didn't tame. say that to a reporter. I said it to a congressman, and he reported it to a, to a reporter. So he threw you under the bus. He did, yes. But it was true, and I did. <laughs> <laughs> So you're not as nice as people think. <laughs> oh, my wife could tell you that. <laughs> Jimmy Carter on Stephen Colbert. Uh, there's there you see Jimmy Carter's fighting spirit, John. I had missed that <laughs> clip. I have. I'm going to go back and watch that whole thing. It reminds me of Hunter S. Thompson's. The best quote in the whole book might be Hunter S. Thompson's characterization of Carter, where he says that Carter was one of the three meanest people he had ever met, <laughs> along with Muhammad Ali and uh, Sonny Barger, the founder. Of Hell's Angels. Well, in fact, that's exactly why I kept the last part of that soundbite in for when Colbert says you're not as nice as uh, people yeah. think you are. Yeah. Um, so that's really great. All right. So so Kennedy does decide after, as you point out, a sort of Hamlet-esque uh, back and forth about whether to run. But he then does f- plunge fully in to a race against Jimmy Carter. What's One of the things that's interesting is you, you have a quote from uh, – Carter, and I assume it's from the interview when you were at the Carter Center, you you say he said, the first year I was in office, Kennedy was my best supporter in the whole Congress. And when I saw that that was changing, particularly late in 78, I believe, I should have gone out of my way. I could have gone out of my way to accommodate him. But isn't that, isn't the fact of the matter that destiny was calling Ed, to Edward Kennedy at that point, that that the pull of his family was heavily upon him. And there's probably little Carter could have done, except for enacting all the programs Kennedy may have wanted him to. He was eventually going to have to jump in that race. Yeah, I think even if Carter had prioritized national health care as Kennedy wanted him to, yeah. and even if he had appointed uh, the judge that Carter is referring to. Um, Arthur Cox. We, uh, 
uh, Archibald Cox. Archibald yes. Cox, yeah, yes, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, even with all that, I think you're correct in pointing to the ephemeral forces. Ephemeral is not the right word. That's more passing. Um, you know, these forces in the air of the ghosts of, of Kennedy's brothers, of his father, all of this um, really powerful mixture of, of stuff, his family history, all of that meant, I think, that at some point in his life, he was going to have to run for president. And uh, what ended up happening was that the external events we talked about earlier, inflation and the energy crisis, pushed Carter's poll numbers down to such a low point that the the pull of history on Kennedy uh, and the, the political circumstances opened up what looked like a wide open door for Kennedy to really just stroll on through and take the nomination from Carter. And the people around Kennedy, and I think Kennedy himself, anticipated that it would not be very hard to do so. Yeah. It's amazing how low Carter's uh, approval rating got as uh, yeah. they were headed toward the convention, toward primary, toward the election year itself um, and the primary campaigns. Um but the but one of the and, and I'm going to ask you to describe. I, I shouldn't characterize this. The most probably famous incident of that campaign, in terms of the way in which it may have altered the outcome of the race, was when Roger Mudd did a one-hour special with Ted Kennedy about the life of Ted Kennedy, about his ambitions. You go into it in great detail and really in, a, in an absorbing and entertaining way, to be honest. Um, tell us a little bit about the setup for that conversation. Well, it's interesting just to mention off the bat that I had to travel to Nashville to actually watch the full hour. You can order a DVD from the archive that they have at the University of Vanderbilt there, but it would cost a lot of money to, to order any kind of DVD of any length. And so you generally have to go there and watch it in this small room. And I spent um, like two days there watching different footage, and I watched the full hour of the Mud interview. And what stood out to me about it is that everybody talks about Kennedy's uh, answer to the Mud question of why do you want to be president? But... You know, as I watched it, the first 30 minutes were all about Chappaquiddick. There were two interviews that Mudd and Kennedy did, and the first one was um, on Martha's Vineyard, and uh, there was no staff there with Kennedy. Um, he was all by himself, and I, he says, he claimed afterwards that he thought this was going to be a, a soft, you know, friendly interview, and Mudd just absolutely dismantles him with question after question, detailed questions about what happened on Chappaquiddick Island the night that Mary Jo Kopechny yeah, died. Yeah, your description of it is riveting. We should tell people, if they're not familiar with Mudd, Mudd at that point was seen as the likely successor to Walter right. Cronkite as yes. the anchor of CBS Evening News. So this was an important moment for Roger Mudd in many ways, and he came in incredibly well prepared. And you're right, he goes after Kennedy and... In, and the descriptions of what happened at Chappaquiddick, like a like a like a fine prosecutor might, and Kennedy really has nowhere to go in that conversation. 
Yeah, and just as an aside, watching the f convention footage, um, more so the Republican convention later that year in 1980, watching sort of Dan, a young Dan Rather suck up to uh, Cronkite on the air <laughs> was pretty remarkable because, of course, Rather gets the chair and yeah. uh, Mud is left out to dry. Yeah. And I just thought, man, Mud really got, uh, you know, he got uh, screwed over, I think. I don't know if that's appropriate language for that's NPR. That's it's, it's um, public radio, John. Yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this this interview goes on, and it's not until minute thirty five or forty that you get to the question of why do you want to be president. And the reason why the the answer that Kennedy gives is, you know, not impressive, but it's also not disastrous. Well, can we listen to just a little sure. bit of it? Yeah, uh, we're not going to play as much as I mean, it goes on and on forever. Right. But we'll play just enough to give our listeners a sense of how it went. Roger Mudd says to Ted Kennedy. Why do you want to be president? Why do you want to be president? Well, I'm... Uh, were I to, to make the, uh, the announcement and uh, to run, the reasons that I would run is because I have a great belief in this country that it is as more natural resources than any nation of the world as the greatest educated population in the world, the greatest technology of any country in the world, uh, the greatest capacity for innovation in the world, and the greatest political system in the world. And yet uh, I see at uh, the current time that uh, most of the industrial nations of the world are exceeding us in terms of productivity, are doing better than us in terms of meeting the problems of inflation, that they're dealing with their problems of energy and their problems of unemployment. And it just seems to me that uh, this nation can cope and deal with its problems in a way that it has in the past. And he goes on and on. Is it, it, that made all the headlines the next day. When you listen to it, it certainly wasn't a focused answer. But how bad was it, John? Kennedy says that he was caught in between a desire to answer the question and a desire not to confirm that he was running yet. Yeah. And that might explain some of the slowness of his answer. I mean, he certainly was very low energy to yeah. use a, a Trumpian <laughs> yeah. type of, yeah. uh, you know, insult. And I think that that might reflect the fact that he was probably overconfident. Um, what ended up being the major interpretation is what Mudd sort of says in his memoir, which is in the moment, Mudd goes, oh, my God, he doesn't know why he wants to run for president. Um, I, you know, I, I can see that answer being sort of Kennedy saying this country has all the potential in the world and we have a president who is not leading in a way to capitalize on that. And I will be the type of leader who can. And that was really the core message that they were going to take against Carter, um, which was a front runner type of message. And once Kennedy falls behind later on, he goes with a much more liberal message, which unlocks some of his charisma and energy. Um, so I think he was uncomfortable with that message. Uh, his own folks said so later. 
But the overall interpretation is he doesn't really know why he wants to run for president because he thinks it's owed to him. And maybe he doesn't even really want to do this. He just feels pressured to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it does not start him off on the right path. Um, but, no. but it does. When I listen to it again and listen to the whole answer and the rest of that part of the conversation, um, it, it didn't strike me as being quite as dramatic as the way I'd always thought it was based on the way the news covered it. But but it does seem clear. I can't imagine a candidate today being that unprepared for for that question. And you may be right, because Kennedy was trying to dodge whether he was really a candidate. But maybe it's partly because of the era of social media. We're living in 24-hour news cycles. Uh, you've got to be prepared at any moment to know why you're doing anything when you're running for political office. Yeah, and I think the 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 way our communications and our media works, I think there's just an expectation of a higher level of right. energy. Um, the image you want to project is uh, you want it to be much more robust. Image matters a lot, I think, more than it did back then, even though image has always been an important part of politics. I think it's increasingly so. So now, and uh, you know that they were transitioning still at that time out of uh, an age of really di- dynasty politics into the age of more populist type uh, television dominated. Um, really politics. good point. In fact, isn't that the story of Jimmy Carter, the grassroots yeah, politician? Right. Right. Well, that a lot of that does also relate to the changes made to the primary system right. after the '68 right. primary. His guys were ahead of the curve in terms of where most of the rest of the party was. They thought it was still a convention process. As a matter of fact, the the, the three presidents who um, were not renominated by their party. You know, in the 1850s and 60s, that was a convention system. And that system was still dominant really up until 68. Yeah, I mean, that was the genius of uh, Hamilton Jordan's, uh, what is it, 40-page memo, uh, which he presented to then Governor Carter, laying out exactly how Carter could become president. And it was through winning primaries on his way to the nomination. So um, that's right. So let's go to the very quickly. uh, We should say that so Kennedy engages with Carter. He's definitely in the fight. They're running against one another. Uh, it, it, things did not start out well for Kennedy. He, I think the caucuses in 76 were in like the 20th, 21st of January. Um, and Carter killed him like 59 to 30, 31 percent. Um, and a lot of it had to do with work on the ground, right? Um, I Didn't don't know it? if we've touched... Uh, work on the ground. Um, what does that mean? Okay, I mean grassroots effort. I mean getting oh, out there oh. and working hard to turn out your voters. Yeah, I mean that was part of it, but I think the bigger issue here is that when the hostages are taken, uh, it just throws everything upside down. Okay, because... so what yours? All right, that's. Let me stop if you don't mind. Sure. So yeah. you're saying okay, thank you. You're saying. As when the, as early in the hostage crisis, the yeah. country rallies around President right. Carter. And you believe that has a lot to do with why Iowans in their caucuses uh, gave him such a big victory. It, it's only yes. much later that it begins to really hurt Jimmy Carter. And by that time, we're in the general election campaign. Is that a fair I, way to say it? That is correct. And if I can just say one thing about sure. that, I mean, I think it's fascinating when you kind of imagine it this way. 
when you're in early early November of 79, Kennedy's a, three days away from, from announcing his candidacy, and that's when the hostages are taken. Yeah. It puts it takes Kennedy off the stage entirely, and it goes from a Carter-Kennedy primary to a referendum on whether Americans support the president. And Kennedy is completely out of the picture. So that's really the big picture here. And then when you get to Iowa... Kennedy's not a good match for that state, and maybe that wouldn't have mattered if he was, you know, still up two to one over Carter in the polls as he was from much of the fall of '79. But by this time, he's underwater in the polls, and he and so he's he's just not a good match for these Iowa temperamentally conservative farm this farm state, and he's coming in as like this political celebrity from the Northeast, and it's just not not working. All right. Uh, Let me get to another break real quick. When we come back, let's talk about the final dance. Uh, We're not going to get through the entire primary season. That's why people should go out and buy Camelot's (laughs) End. Uh, But we are going to talk about the final dance between Jimmy Carter and Edward Kennedy at Madison Square Garden at the Democratic National Convention. I'm talking with John Ward. You're listening to Political Rewind. On the next Fresh Air, an unstuffy conversation about grammar and usage with Random House copy chief Benjamin Dreyer, author of the new book Dreyer's English, which he sarcastically subtitled An Utterly Correct Guide to Clarity and Style. He says he found his voice as an author by writing on Twitter, where his language advice has become very popular. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB, and you can listen online at gpbnews.org. I'm Ross Terrell, GPB's reporter in Atlanta. I cover issues that affect the metro area, and I break down what they mean for people across the state and people just like you. Issues like MARTA expansion and new cityhood movements making their way through the Gold Dome. Listen to Georgia Public Broadcasting for in-depth reporting that matters and stand with the facts. We're back on Political Rewind. John Ward is with us, the author of Camelot's End. Um, so, John, we, your book takes us through, in a, in a beautiful way, uh, the fight between Kennedy and Carter for the nomination. Carter comes into the convention, um, you know, with an edge, but with an edge in delegates, but still not certain because we're going to see a fight over a rule to open the convention, right? That's right. And I think Georgia listeners will appreciate the fact that the month or so before the convention, Carter is sent into another political tailspin by none other than his brother, Billy Carter. Yes, exactly. Um, and that's a fascinating little sub episode where Billy Carter's contacts with uh, members of the Libyan government over uh, potential attempts to get them weapon sales from the U.S. government uh, provokes a inquiry by the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, and that really panics Carter's um, campaign and uh, White House advisors. And so in the weeks uh, leading up to the convention, Tom Donilon, who went on to become um, President Obama's national security advisor, he is a, a young 20-something uh, Carter aide, and he's running Carter's delegate operation. He's in charge of making sure that their delegates stay with them. And uh, I interviewed Tom because I really wanted to be sure that this was a real concern because there was it was a little unclear in the historical record how uh, how real it was, the possibility that Carter could lose the nom- nomination at the convention. 
And when I sat down with Tom uh, for lunch uh, a block from the White House a year or two ago, he told me he was very concerned. It was very close to slipping away from them. And so what ends up happening is that they have the vote on the floor on the first night of the convention. Carter's uh, people are able to hold together their coalition. They are they are they are putting out fires uh, at the to the last minute, um, you know, at one point, the main delegation is going to vote um, uh, against Carter and they uh, and they alert Carter about this. Carter um, calls a, a figure in the main uh, in, in main politics, a former senator whose name is I should know it, but it's escaping me. And within minutes, they've kind of tamped it down. And uh, it's that sort of thing up until the last minute. But they prevail. And finally, on Monday night, Kennedy gives a short statement dropping out of the race. Yes, yeah, so Carter now knows he will win the nomination, but the drama right. the drama isn't over. In Madison Square Garden, no, it's only that's beginning. Not, that's only the beginning of the pain for Jimmy Carter. Unfortunately, he, you know, I just go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, well, you go I, ahead. I, mean, I just think it's really interesting. Another, you know, moment from my conversation with Tom. Tom laments <clears throat> that after the convention, Carter is not seen as the giant killer, and in fact. As Carter said on the Colbert uh, late night show, he did yeah. whip uh, Ted Kennedy, but yeah. he wasn't seen that way because of the way that the last night unfolded where Carter gives a speech and then they wait 20 minutes for Kennedy to show that up. It's a yeah. painful episode. Let's, we got a couple of minutes to talk about that. Yeah. As we get there, though, first of all, Ted Kennedy, of course, he's lost, but he gets to come out. And as passive uh, and as uncertain of his words as he sounded yeah. in the Roger Mudd interview, uh, I'm old enough that I saw Ted Kennedy give a number of stem-winding speeches, and it was one of the most thrilling things you could ever watch. And to have been in Madison Square Garden, which I was not, that night in 1980 when he gave a speech to the uh, a crowd there must have been incredibly exciting. And, and there are some famous words from it. I, we don't have time to play even an excerpt from it. I'm wondering, Robert, if we could find the Ted Kennedy 1980 Democratic Convention speech and post a link to it on our, uh, on, on our social media platforms, because it's really worth listening to. For me, a few hours ago, this campaign came to an end. For all those whose cares have been our concern, the work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. Uh, just a part of a wonderful speech. Yes. Yeah, it's the greatest speech he ever gave by yeah. far. And one of the most memorable speeches of the last several decades in American politics, for sure. So he does that. The crowd loves him. Con the convention is on, on the last night, Thursday night. The president's given his speech. And now it's time for the balloon drop. Right. Uh, of course, in Which the doesn't middle, yeah, it doesn't quite work. <laughs> uh, I think you quote somebody as saying they should have fired the guy who was responsible for the balloon drop. Um, yeah, not a good sign yeah. when that's not going well. So this is the moment many people, we all know this, we all know what happens on Thursday night at the end. Everybody comes together, all the people who have been at war with one another, the other candidates for the job, their spouses, they all come out on the stage and they hug and they hold their hands up, clasp their hands in victory. Uh, not so much with Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy, right? No, Kennedy comes in the hall and the, and the hall actually finally explodes with applause in a way they hadn't for Carter after his speech. And um, Carter is really, you know, wants to get the photo of him and Kennedy with their hands raised together in the air in a, a, shine, a, a sign of unity. 
and he shakes Kennedy's hand, but Kennedy won't go up <laughs> in that yeah. pose. And then Kennedy walks around the stage for a good five minutes or so. Um, and I'm not exaggerating. It might have been more than five. It's in the book, however long it was. But he shakes hands with Kennedy, uh, with Carter a few times. He shakes hands with Rosalind. He shakes hands with everybody on the stage. And at times, Carter is just standing at the front of the stage sort of by himself as Kennedy makes the, makes the circuit around the stage, talking with people, shaking hands with people on the stage. And uh, Kennedy eventually leaves the stage with without doing the, the traditional unity pose. Teddy White, the, the journalist and historian, wrote that it was as if Kennedy had showed up at the wedding of his chauffeur. Oh. And it was, uh, it was, I think, the most hum- humiliating moment of Jimmy Carter's uh, life, maybe. And, and I don't think we can possibly really know, given that the hostage crisis continued on, Carter was um, seen to be struggling and figuring out how to resolve it. We can't really know for certain what kind of impact that moment and the entire Kennedy campaign against Carter had on the outcome of the election. But what, how do you speculate on how much damage that did to Carter's winning a second term? Well, Georgians will know this. I think a lot of people outside Georgia might not. But Carter had, was always a very confident person, a very self-confident person. And I, and I think uh, that incident probably dinged that up a little bit. I think if you look ahead to the general election, you know, the hostage crisis, as much as it helped Carter in the primary, definitely was the decisive issue in uh, causing him to lose I, to Reagan. I, so we're really coming to the end of the show. And and I before I even ask you the final question, I can't tell you how much pleasure it's been to have you this on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, yes, and how much you. fun. I love when, when people on my show correct me because I make mistakes. <laughs> so thank you for that. Uh, uh, what I love, frankly, uh, given that Carter's an important force here in Georgia, is you remind us uh, what his post-White House legacy has been. He's gone on to be a remarkable uh, person doing remarkable things. And I've got about 15 seconds for you to make that point because you uh, were out at the I Carter will, Center. I will just say that uh, my estimation of Jimmy Carter has gone up in, immeasurably. I hold him as a personal hero at this point because of his life, his integrity, and his character. John Ward, the book is Camelot's End, Kennedy versus Carter, and the Fight That Broke the Democratic Party. Uh, thank you so much. It was really fun talking to you on Political Rewind today. Hey, we're back tomorrow. Likewise. We've got an all-star panel to talk about Stacey Abrams and to talk about uh, the President's State of the Union address. Uh, we'll do that starting at 2 tomorrow. You cut it. John, are you still there? I'm still here, yeah. I just thank you very much. I really enjoyed doing the show, and I, I appreciate you taking so much time for us. Well, Bill, thank you. I really, uh, that was probably the most fun interview I've done about oh, the book. Well, and, that's good. Uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. Hey, do me, listen, can we stay, I would, you know, if there's ever a chance that we could engage you to be uh, one of, on a panel with one of these shows, if you're coming through Atlanta or whatever, I'd yeah. really like to stay in touch with you. 
I'd love that. Okay. Matter of fact, I inter- I had breakfast with uh, Stacey Abrams back in 2014 during, oh, you did? In, in Atlanta during the uh, oh, wow. the missing voters thing. Yeah, so oh. I've been following her pretty closely, and um, yeah, I know a number of people down there in Atlanta. I've, I've just happened to be there. Do we just uh, get to you at, at Yahoo News? Yeah, well, let me give you my Gmail. Oh, it's, that'd be great. Um, that'd be great. Yeah, it's JDW. Okay. J O U R N O. So JDW Journo at Gmail. All right. That sounds great. I'd love to stay in touch. Uh, Likewise, Bill. I really appreciate you having me on. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. You know what? They're... What do they want me to say? I'm sorry. I don't mean to give you a hard time. What? Hey, um, Tom. For the sake of the last 30, I mean, I'll be more than happy to do something, so don't worry Live about it. Live from NPR News in Washington. We're out of time for this edition of Political Rewind. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm Bill Nygut. See you again. I'm Bill Nygut. See you again soon.